Hello, and welcome to the Net OGs, an original podcast series brought to you by Duration Media. I'm your host, Andy Batkin. This series asks and answers the question, what was the internet like before the internet was a thing, and who were the original players? Each week, I'll be joined by an OG, not an old guy or gal, but the true original gangsters of the internet. Grab a drink, sit back and learn how the largest medium in the world was built and listen to never before heard stories from some of the visionaries that formed the first internet media companies and digital ad agencies. On today's episode, I'm joined by Brad Koenig. Brad was the head of global technology investment banking at Goldman Sachs in the internet heydays from 1990 to 2005 and the co-head of global technology, media and telecommunications from 2002 to 2005. In a 21-year career at Goldman Sachs, Brad and his team were responsible for taking public iconic companies like Microsoft, Netscape, Yahoo, DoubleClick, eBay, eToys, PeopleSoft, and UUNet, just to name a few. More recently, he was the founder and CEO of FoodieDirect.com, which was sold to Goldbelly in 2018, and is currently the co-CEO and director of Apex Acquisition Corp., a SPAC, which recently announced the business combination with Avpoint, which is an enterprise software company that is a leader in the Microsoft Cloud data management environment, which is currently trading at a market value of over $3 billion. Please welcome our first investment banker, NetOG, Brad Koenig. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, Brad. Great to see another Long Islander. <laughs> We're everywhere. Absolutely. So, Brad, you got a Harvard MBA. What? Why did you go to Goldman Sachs? Well, I, uh, w while at Harvard, I developed a very strong interest in investment banking. I actually had worked at Merrill Lynch between my college and business school years. So I spent two years working at Merrill Lynch. And when I went to Harvard, I had a strong interest in investment banking. The summer at business school, I had worked at Morgan Stanley. And then when I was interviewing for a permanent job out of Harvard, I connected with a gentleman who was a partner at Goldman Sachs, who had also gone to Dartmouth and been a uh, president of a fraternity that I happened to be in and he was leading the Harvard Business School recruiting team and we established a great connection and I became extremely impressed and focused on Goldman Sachs. Well, certainly a good choice to say the least. Uh, so you spent about 10 years before you started doing internet deals. Uh, help, help, help us learn what it was that you were doing and, and how did you get interested in, in technology type deals? Well, interestingly, when I joined Goldman Sachs in 1984, I really didn't know much, if anything, about technology. I didn't have a technology or engineering background. And the same gentleman, uh, Peter Fahey, who had recruited me to join Goldman Sachs in New York in 1984, became head of Goldman's nascent investment banking group, uh, technology investment banking group. And that group was really started in 1985 and 86 with Goldman Sachs mandate to manage the Microsoft IPO. And in 1986 uh, was a watershed year, year for technology IPOs. In addition to the Microsoft IPO, Oracle went public that year as well as Sun Microsystems and so forth. 
And so uh, this partner at Goldman, Peter Fahey, invited me to join the technology group. And so through that happenstance, I became involved uh, in the tech group. And in 1987, I moved out to our San Francisco in the West Coast and became one of the first bankers that became uh, located outside of New York City. And we really started to ramp our focus and effort in investment banking for technology companies. So when, when did it became, become apparent to you that this new thing, the internet was on the horizon? Well, when I first moved out uh, to the West Coast in 1987, uh, there were uh, many technology companies that preceded the internet that really uh, developed the technology infrastructure and platforms that the inter internet would leverage. So for example, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, there was the very strong advent of the IBM compatible personal computer. And that, uh, of course, drove massive value creation for companies, including Microsoft, Intel, Dell Computer, Compaq, uh, and so forth. In addition, in the late 80s and early 90s, we saw the advent of networking both local networking companies, which connected uh, uh, different uh, computers and, and, and print file servers within local areas, companies like Novell and 3Com, and then ultimately Cisco, which was the pioneer in wide area networking, which would connect uh, different businesses into the overall wide area. And all that technology development through the 80s and 90s led to the uh, creation of the internet infrastructure uh, on the part of internet access providers, such as at the time, UUNet, which was acquired by MCI and AOL, America Online, uh, and of course, Netscape, which was the pioneer in the development of the browser. So leading up to that uh, point, which was the mid nineties, there was a uh, very significant developments in technology that provided the devices and the networks, which would enable ultimately the internet to thrive. So what was the, 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 the pitch that Netscape uh, gave you guys to make you think that they could be, you know, the, the, the browser, the, the mechanism to make the internet work in the beginning? Well, uh, it, it, going back, and this is uh, a, a long ways, uh, interestingly, Microsoft, which was obviously the leader in PC software, did not have a browser. And so uh, it, um, Netscape, which was founded by Mark uh, Andreessen, uh, came out of the University of Illinois, and it was the uh, first browser that enabled uh, users uh, on a computer to be able to browse and surf uh, the internet. And so at the time, they had a very unique position. Uh, obviously over time, the browser turned out to be a commodity and companies like Microsoft and Google uh, and, and so forth uh, entered and provided their own solution for that. But at the time, uh, the internet browser uh, launched by Netscape was a groundbreaking uh, technology. Did you personally have a vision of what the internet could be? And did, did your colleagues at, at, at Goldman Sachs share that vision? I would say that we were, uh, in being investment bankers in technology, we were 
charged with obviously staying very close to important trends in the technology industry. And this in part drove our relationships with venture capitalists, with other influencers in technology, and of course with technology companies themselves. So part of our charter and mandate was to really become very knowledgeable on important trends in technology. And uh, since the advent of the internet was so new and groundbreaking, we and everybody else uh, were at the front end of trying to get our arms around understanding what the internet could come to and could represent. Uh, obviously, uh, whatever our thoughts were then, they were massively overwhelmed by the actual development uh, of the internet. But yes, I think we saw uh, in the internet the potential that uh, individual and on, on devices uh, across the world ultimately could connect and could have access to uh, information and content and services uh, around the globe, but exactly how it was going to develop and who were going to be the the drivers and leaders and who are going to be the beneficiaries and so forth was really unclear. And that's what kind of those mid nineties was all about. So, so other than maybe Alex Brown and Hambrick and Quist, uh, were there any other uh, banks like Goldman who, who sort of put a, you know, a flag in the ground there on the West coast? Well, interestingly, I, I refer to it as the harm harm group. Uh, the acronym HARM, and it was Hambrick and Quist, Alex Brown, Robertson Stevens, and Montgomery. So those were the four technology-focused investment banks that really pioneered uh, investment banks working with these hyper-growth technology companies. Uh, then Morgan Stanley actually entered, was the first bulge black bracket global investment bank to enter the technology sector. And they participated in the Apple IPO in 1980 and companies like uh, Quantum Disk Drive and, and other leaders in technology. And Goldman was a little bit late to the party. Uh, but in 1986, when we won the mandate to lead manage the Microsoft IPO, uh, that for the Goldman Sachs technology practice was a, was a watershed event and I think put us on a par with Morgan Stanley. And to this day, 35 years later, really Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, I think, continue to be the uh, clear leaders in investment banking. That harm group uh, that we spoke of ended up all being acquired or merged into other global investment banks. And so uh, really the landscape in technology investment banking is pretty much dominated by these large global investment banks with Goldman and Morgan Stanley at the top, another about, uh, a number of other larger firms that are uh, also have, have strong practices. And then there's been the um, advent of boutiques on the M&A or strategic side that have also uh, emerged. So. Uh, it's interesting, though, that back uh, as far as the mid-80s, that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were the leaders in the investment banking technology market and have sustained that position even today. So, so I'm interested is that, you know, late to the party with obviously, a, you know, an incredible brand. Uh, ha how did you break into the, the market there? I, I remember 
uh, Alex Brown had some of the most incredible networking, you know, parties. They took over Alcatraz. I was invited to a party there. I was, I remember being in a, in a, um, a solitary confinement cell for a second. And I thought I was going to lose my mind, but you know, the, the, the networking and the relationships that, uh, I made personally in, in, at that event, uh, and, and subsequently others was amazing. So, um, how, how did you guys, you could come in as carpetbaggers, so to speak, and, and, and develop these relationships? Yeah. So, uh, Andy, that's, that's a good point. So we did enter the market and our thesis was that uh, we at Goldman Sachs, we had this great brand. We had this very strong global presence, a leader in global investment banking. But in order to be successful, we had to develop the relationships and the focus and the domain expertise that would equal and ultimately surpass even these tech-focused boutique firms like Hamburg and Quist and Robertson Stevens. So in constructing our group, we put together a uh, best of breed team in investment banking, and that involved both corporate finance, i.e. working with companies to go public and also in mergers and acquisition. So we developed a team of bankers who were specialists in technology. They were not generalists who also worked on retail and industrial companies, but specialists in technology who knew as much and had uh, the requisite skills and uh, market understanding and relationships as any Hambrick and Quist or Montgomery banker. We also developed a best in class research capability. So uh, very important to many of these groundbreaking companies was having research analysts that provided research coverage that were recognized globally as uh, thought leaders in the specific sphere. So at Goldman Sachs, for example, we uh, had uh, several analysts, uh, Rick Sherland in software, John Levinson in uh, computer hardware, Dan Benton also in computer hardware was a Harvard Business School classmate of mine. Uh, those three research analysts became the number one institutional investor ranked analyst in their various field. And that was also extremely important in developing Goldman Sachs's credibility and positioning within the technology marketplace. So our approach was to develop a highly focused, knowledgeable and specialized team within Goldman Sachs that had the same knowledge and understanding and relationships as a boutique technology investment bank, a specialized technology investment bank, but that was part of a, uh, a dominant global investment banking platform that could provide the services and the access uh, and the input and advice that a, only a global firm like Goldman Sachs was capable of providing. And so that approach I think was very successful and ultimately led to the consolidation in the industry where these um, smaller specialized boutique oriented firms really couldn't compete with the, uh, with the global behemoths in investment banking. So I, I wanna move towards how you found these companies, uh, especially in the internet. Um, and and it, 
as we move towards that, I would love to, to understand is, was it you selling just the investment banking capability um, of taking them public or was, you know, these were companies that really weren't generating a lot of revenue, if at all, were you providing mezzanine financing to get them to that, uh, the, you know, the promised land, so to speak? So uh, as uh, the 90s emerged and as the technology market uh, really took off and then the, the uh, advent of the internet and, and AOL and Netscape and UNIT and so forth, uh, the public market was embracing these companies and embracing the massive opportunity that the emergence of the internet represented. And so uh, the, the, the um, most prominent uh, global technology investors like Fidelity and Wellington and T. Rowe Price, uh, it turns out back in the 90s, were willing to invest in the public equities of companies that were at a very early stage of development. And so companies like uh, Netscape and Yahoo and Amazon and ultimately Google, they had uh, several series of venture capital investments, you know, A rounds, B rounds, but most of them didn't have those later stage mezzanine rounds and they moved straight to uh, the IPOs. And as I said, there was great receptivity and support within the public market stockholder uh, technology shareholder base to uh, invest in these companies, even though they were very early stages of development and in many cases had either nascent or non non-existent revenues. So who, who zoomed who here? You know, in the beginning, uh, obviously, you know, coming from the Goldman Sachs brand, you guys, quality was, you know, Goldman Sachs and quality were, were the same word. Uh, how did you, how did you find these companies? And did they come to you? Did, did you now say, you and your team say, okay, hey, we got to go out and start finding these companies and start wooing them? So I think the uh, emergence of the internet uh, really came on like thunder within the uh, equity markets. And so <clears throat> once again, that the Netscape uh, IPO took place and the internet access providers uh, took place, there was uh, a massive interest on the part of the stock market investors in these companies who were going to be leaders in new areas, whether it was commerce or content or media and so forth. And so being part of the technology landscape and investment banking, our team, our group was in very close engagement with the leading venture capital firms and with the companies and executives themselves. So we uh, were right at ground zero in terms of uh, having strong relationships with the companies and their investors that were now beginning to consider accessing the public market in a way that uh, companies had never before accessed the public market. And so we were uh, engaging with venture capitalists like um, Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia and Benchmark and Axel. And these companies were 
uh, providing investments to these entrepreneurial teams that were then uh, defining business plans and strategies and, and building uh, management teams that would focus on different opportunities within, within this explosive internet environment. So we really prided ourselves on, on being very early uh, in terms of engaging with these potentially very attractive, valuable companies. So obviously a very competitive world, uh, but you, you guys needed to be focused on your investors and the people that you were going to bring these deals to. So what was your approach to establish whether or not you wanted to take one of these companies public? Let's, let's talk about Yahoo, you know, as an example, um, or really you could pick anyone, but uh, curious as to um, how you guys as a team made the decision to say, here's this company who's, got an idea, maybe making a little traction, but, but what was it that they, that they had to be to qualify to be a Goldman deal? Yeah, so Andy, that was a, a big um, crossing of the Rubicon for a firm like Goldman Sachs. Uh, and I recall even when we received the mandate to lead manage the Microsoft IPO, which was featured on the cover of Fortune magazine and was very famous in its day. But I remember the uh, commitments committee at Goldman Sachs, which was comprised of these uh, iconic investment bankers chomping on their cigars who were questioning the sustainability of Microsoft's gross margin because a CD-ROM only cost uh, a dollar when they were charging, uh, Microsoft was charging $20 for a copy of the operating system. So clearly uh, these major Wall Street firms and Goldman Sachs among them had to be educated in terms of the potential explosive opportunity that many of these technology pioneers might represent. In the case of Yahoo specifically, and I remember first meeting Jerry Yang in a very small dark office in Mountain View, California, where I walked in, uh, introduced myself and he took me into the back closet and showed me a server rack, which he uh, told me was Yahoo uh, in operation. And so uh, that's how far back that uh, Yahoo uh, went, but uh, I think the feeling at Goldman Sachs was that you had this massive new platform, the internet that was emerging, and you were going to have millions and millions and ultimately billions of uh, users who were accessing the internet. And traditionally, uh, advertisers had spent money to reach their targeted users on television and other forms uh, of advertising. And so now we had this platform that I think there was strong conviction that was gonna become a, a, a large and important platform that users would engage. We didn't know how large or how quickly or how massively it was going to grow, but clearly there was going to be a, a significant audience. And our uh, approach was that uh, these massive uh, brands and companies 
would want to reach the, this audience. So we felt that there was a very compelling opportunity for a company such as Yahoo, which was the leader in search, which again, uh, after the browser came out, uh, search was the primary application for new users of the internet to be able to search uh, and, and, and find what they were looking for. And so we felt strongly that over time, a leader in search through the um, uh, provision of banner advertising was going to represent a very significant commercial opportunity. And so when we decided to take Yahoo public, uh, even though its revenues were, were very small and nascent and the company was really uh, just in the, in the process of building a, a management team, uh, we did have a strong conviction that online advertising was gonna represent a, a, a big opportunity uh, down the road. And so when we positioned Yahoo in the context of an IPO and presented uh, the uh, investor deck on the roadshow with institutional investors, we made clear what we felt the opportunity was and, and, and Jerry Yang and Tim Kugel, who was a newly hired CEO, went out and pitched the story extremely effectively. Uh, but we made sure that uh, investors understood that here is the opportunity, here is what we think it could look like going forward. This is the prospective business model, but exactly what pace that this growth was going to take place and how the penetration was going to develop over time was, was not certain. But these investors very much embraced the opportunity and they afforded a very high valuation uh, to these companies. And they were, I think, willing to take on the risk that there was not tremendous visibility or certainty in how it would develop, but that these uh, companies that had these very strong franchises were gonna develop into very valuable companies over time. Well, you, you, you got the upgrade on the, the first visit with Jerry. When we got introduced to, to Jerry by Sequoia Capital, we went to a, you know, some kind of a business uh, park where they literally pulled up the traditional garage door. <laughs> you know, so, and there were just pizza boxes and Jerry and David Philo and two engineers, but no servers yet. They were, you, they were using Netscape servers. Um, needless to say, you know, the, 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 they made a lot of progress and started to do a lot of deals because they had, they had currency. We were thrilled that we wrote their business plan and we were their media sales rep for the first two years of their life. And um, I remember just as we were leaving, um, they were starting to have conversations with Mark Cuban and, and broadcast.com. So on these follow-up kinds of deals that they did, were you still advising uh, companies like Yahoo for these uh, M&A type activities? We were, and uh, in almost every case, we were on one side or the other. In the case of the uh, acquisition of broadcast, we represented Yahoo. Uh, we then, we had also taken, uh, this is a blast from the past name, but GeoCities, if you recall. Right. That we was before taken, Mark, I think. That was, right, didn't you do that before? About the same time, it was after <laughs> Yahoo. But we had represent, we had uh, lead managed the GeoCities IPO. We then represented GeoCities when they were acquired by Yahoo. 
Uh, subsequently, we were the lead manager of the eBay IPO. There were very highly publicized, high-level discussions between Yahoo and eBay about merging, and who knows what that would have become if it had taken place. But yes, we worked with Yahoo and other clients of ours uh, to uh, really um, uh, serve their entire scope of needs, including financing, uh, as well as strategic advice and um, representation. And, and so our approach when we took one of these companies public, you know, the IPOs themselves back in those days were uh, several tens of millions of dollars in size. So it would be a $50 million IPO in and of itself in terms of Goldman Sachs's business model. It was not a very uh, profitable uh, or large transaction, but the concept of lifetime value uh, where we felt that over time for leading companies, there was going to be a very significant opportunity to generate very attractive and healthy investment banking fees uh, if we made that investment in the IPO uh, relationship going forward. So we work with many of these companies over many years to raise additional rounds of financing, whether it be uh, secondary uh, stock offerings or convertible debt offerings in some cases. And we also advised on many, many uh, strategic uh, transactions. I want to take a quick second to thank our sponsor, Duration Media, an ad tech software company that creates revenue generation solutions for publishers. Duration Media finds, mines, and monetizes only highly viewable ad impressions, which finally makes a product that's good for publishers and advertisers. For more information, visit their website at durationmedia.net. So uh, I, I'm curious is that, you know, as these deals got hot, you know, all of the big investors and uh, either the Goldman had, you know, there had to be an allocation, you know, discussion that went, that went into many, you know, late into the night is that everyone said that they wanted these shares. Um, so number one is, you know, how did you guys work on allocation? And was this around the time where you started to develop European tranches and, and other uh, areas to find investors uh, more globally versus just the U.S. Well, the allocation uh, problem, as we move today into 2021, must still exist because in the uh, <laughs> IPO I know yesterday of a firm, and last week of Airbnb, and today of Poshmark. Uh, have uh, deals which are being priced at 50 and then trading up to 100. So that uh, allocation and and subsequent aftermarket spike has not been solved by uh, investment banks. So that that problem exists today. And if you think about it, uh, you are pricing a deal at 50 that's going to trade at 100. So you're selling dollars for 50 cents. So every investor. Uh, of the every customer, investing customer of the investment bank wants to get as many shares of that stock as he or she can. So all those deals were massively oversubscribed. And so the banks would have to go through an allocation process. In many cases, the banks would provide those allocations based on the volume of, of business, commission business that the investors did with those investment banks. Uh, and I know that that uh, pricing mechanism and inefficiency, which, as I mentioned, still exists today, is being criticized 
uh, by um, many, including Bill Gurley, uh, who's one of the more vocal ones. And so through direct listings and through even the SPAC uh, as a platform, which is, uh, as you had mentioned earlier, I've been involved with, I think our other uh, approaches to uh, paths to public ownership that may represent more efficient uh, pricing and uh, value uh, establishing mechanisms. But in the day, there was this oversubscription and allocation problem. Uh, the interest on the part of European and other global investors uh, obviously became very strong in the wake of, of how uh, the performance of these tech stocks. And so uh, companies began going to Europe on their IPOs and there'd always be a segment. We'd go to uh, significant European money centers like um, London and Zurich and Frankfurt and meet with European institutions as part of the roadshow. And so um, companies began to believe that having uh, global stock ownership was important. And uh, many of these companies over time were uh, very aggressive and expanding internationally. And so it made sense for their uh, common stock ownership profile to also represent international interests. So, so let's get back to some of the other deals. Uh, uh, I'd love to hear some of the, the stories of when you met uh, some of the uh, more successful, you know, let's call them bigger names that still around. Uh, so why don't you share with our audience uh, a couple of stories that are near and dear to your heart? Sure. I'll, I'll start with one, which was a, a company, Amazon, which unfortunately we did not win the mandate to do the IPO, although Goldman Sachs has had uh, a number of significant uh, mandates in advisory and financing roles with uh, Amazon in the years. But I remember meeting Jeff Bezos in a small dark warehouse in Seattle when uh, Amazon was launched. And I had a uh, discussion and conversation with him uh, and I was very curious about the name Amazon. And so one of my first questions was, why, why the name Amazon? Uh, I get selling books and music CDs over the internet, but what's with Amazon? And he said that his vision was to one day that Amazon would sell any and everything over the internet. And that, yes, today it was books and uh, music CDs, but tomorrow it would be furniture and clothing and uh, so on and so forth. And I was very skeptical and uh, told Jeff that I thought he was way overestimating his uh, uh, opportunity. And uh, thankfully, he didn't listen to my advice <laughs> and, and the rest and the rest is history. Another story that was similar was um, we were calling on eBay, which when it was founded by Pierre Omidier, uh, it, it got an investment from Benchmark uh, and a number of partners there were, uh, were close friends and, and clients of, of mine and ours at Goldman Sachs. And we were introduced to Pierre Omidier and Jeff Skoll, who were the founders of eBay. And at the time, eBay was essentially uh, an online flea market. And it was uh, an auction site for trinkets and collectibles and Beanie Babies and so forth. And we met them uh, 
obviously Pierre Omidier had a vision for eBay that was going to transcend that uh, crafts like uh, marketplace. And we all know what it became, but I remember uh, sitting in the office with Pierre when Meg Whitman showed up uh, on her first day of work. And Meg had been uh, a consultant at Bain and then had worked at WTD, which was a flowers company. And it also worked at Disney. And she came in with her gray flannel skirt suit <laughs> bow tie and uh, you know was not immediately quite the great cultural fit uh, but uh, I'll never forget that day and of course we we ended up lead managing that IPO and Meg was incredibly successful uh, in working with Pierre and the founding team and filling out the management team in driving eBay uh, to become obviously one of the pioneers and leaders in, in e-commerce. So those were kind of some of the stories. And I think they were symptomatic of the, the trend that I pointed to earlier was that these companies, which at the time I think eBay had 5 million of gross merchandise revenues Amazing. in the quarter that it had gone public, uh, but that the public markets were, um, were willing to invest in these companies because they saw the massive opportunity that they were just really starting to uh, tap in uh, into at the surface. That's fascinating. So, so let's talk about DoubleClick. Uh, uh, I know Kevin, you know, for 25 plus years, you guys got involved in a lot of deals where, you know, it was media. Let's use Yahoo again as an example is that they were going to become an internet media company. Um, DoubleClick was really more of providing the infrastructure. It, it, was that what, what attracted you to DoubleClick or, or maybe just tell us what it was that, that, uh, that, that enticed you to get involved with those guys? Sure. Uh, well, uh, DoubleClick, which was founded uh, by, by Kevin, who's gone on to found many other exceptional, exciting companies, was groundbreaking in really providing the opportunity for ad serving and, and to really target uh, and, and map a brand's targeting objectives with um, messages and ads that were directed towards uh, the most um, uh, qualified individuals and deliver a, a message that was consistent with that targeting. And so, uh, Again, um, in, in the wake of this massive internet platform, the ability to provide a technology platform which optimized this ad serving was, was really a, a pioneering opportunity. Ultimately, they became uh, Google's. Obviously, um, DoubleClick was sold to Hellman and Friedman, a private equity firm, uh, years after its IPO and ultimately to Google. But that was a very key enabling technology which bridged the gap uh, that enabled these massive brands to, uh, to, to target and deliver their uh, ads to internet users. And so it was a, a very, very critical enabling technology which provided uh, uh, brands with a very valuable service in, in reaching their targeted audience. 
So the, you, you described, you know, the harm group, you know, Morgan, you guys, obviously very competitive. Uh, I'm sure that uh, companies like Yahoo and DoubleClick, et cetera, had lots of people knocking on their door. Um, what do you think was the deciding factors for, for these folks to decide to do a deal with Goldman versus Morgan versus Alex Brown, et cetera? Yeah, that, that's a good question because uh, in each case, uh, this became known as the Bake Off. And uh, <laughs> actually in the Fortune Magazine article about the Microsoft IPO, the CFO at the time, Frank Gaudet, had de developed, I think it was a 15 point program to specifically uh, rate the different investment banks from one to five in each of these different categories. Most companies didn't have that formal of a, of a process, but they usually invited a number of firms to come in and pitch the IPO. And so our pitch was uh, essentially what I alluded to earlier, which is that we at Goldman Sachs would provide an investment banking team that was best of breed in terms of domain expertise, knowledge of the industry, relationships within the industry, uh, and, and could, could provide that in-depth understanding of a company's business and of their strategy and, and develop a very close long-term relationship that would be extremely valuable to the CEO, the CFO, and the board of directors. And with that domain expertise and position in the technology community and with our relationships, we were part of the leading global investment bank, which would enable the company to have access to the, the services of the greatest investment bank on, on the planet. And whether that involved uh, doing financings, whether it involved M&A advice, whether it involved uh, being introduced to potential partners uh, in the international uh, markets, uh, we could provide uh, an unparalleled uh, level of value and service as an investment banker to these, uh, to these rapidly growing technology leaders. And so that was our approach. And, and we wanted to really emphasize our long-term commitment to the relationship. Interestingly, on my SPAC Apex in the business combination that we just announced with AppPoint, uh, which is, as you had mentioned, the leader in the Microsoft cloud data management space. Um, the head of the Goldman Sachs team that worked with AppPoint on this is a fellow named Ryan LeMay, who was a very junior banker in our group back in the uh, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Goldman has always had a very strong team and the team was comprised of bankers who really had been there throughout their entire career. And so uh, I think it was a very uh, compelling proposition to a company to work with uh, a very uh, smart, capable, well-plugged in, hardworking, focused team of people that really could uh, provide and add value in a relationship that would span, in, in many cases, decades. So, so you know, I have a theory, you know, when you're, when you're playing at the top end of the food chain, you have a brand like Goldman Sachs is that you, you win most, lose some, you know, and I'm sure there was some fish that got away that 
when you went home that night, you went, shit. <laughs> tell, tell us about one or two that you, you really, that really just got under your skin that, that got away from you. Yeah, well, I think the biggest one really was Amazon. And I had mentioned that. And mm. we, uh, we were not successful in winning that mandate. Uh, we pitched it. Uh, but um, I believe it was Deutsche Bank. I forget which firm Frank Quattron was with at the time. Right. Yeah. But uh, that team won that mandate and, and did the IPO. And that really stung. And uh, again, no one had any vision of what Amazon would become. But we all knew the company was going to be a, a complete juggernaut and Dynamo and uh, was going to be, had the opportunity to be a massive leader in e-commerce and transform the entire retail landscape. And we didn't win that. And to this day, I uh, think about it and what we could have done differently <laughs> to win that mandate. Uh, but as I said, you know, if you lose the IPO mandate, you live to fight another day. And to the credit of our team, over time, uh, Goldman Sachs has had many engagements with Amazon on both the financing and strategic side. So, so now you're you're moving into the the crash. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, how did that affect the investment banking business? And then help us understand that you, you had a number of deals that were out there. Was there an attempt to see which ones you could continue to help and you know, pump some blood into? Or, um, you know, I'm sure it was a very confusing time. Uh, so tell us about the, the crash and what was going on inside the walls there with your team. Sure. So that was a, a, a very uh, traumatic and challenging time uh, in, in the lead up to the crash in 1999 and 2000. Uh, we grew from a group that was, you know, a couple of dozen people in the mid 90s to over 200 people within the Goldman Technology Group globally. We hired Many people directly out of business school, new associates, which we had never done before in a group. And we staffed up uh, to be able to accommodate and provide the capacity for the number of new clients and IPOs that we took on in, in 1999 and 2000. And I, I think, I don't remember exactly, but it was several dozens of, of companies that we took public in each of those years. So we had staffed up very uh, considerably and there was a massive proliferation, the number of companies that went public. And obviously the, the markets were affording very, very high valuations to these companies. And the crash came in um, really at early 2000 and then with 9-11, which happened and that kind of was the, was the final nail in the coffin. But many, many of these companies that had traded at multiple billions of dollars were trading at multiple cents uh, per share uh, in the wake of the crash. So obviously uh, uh, there was a, a, a massive meltdown in the market. Uh, investors lost a very substantial amount of money. We had many clients that we had taken public again that um, really uh, because the markets were providing 
massive financings for companies that had not yet proven a profitable, viable business model, many of these companies were not able to survive because they didn't have the cash resources to be able to withstand the, um, you know, the meltdown in their stock price in the market. So many of those companies went out of business. The number of transactions, IPOs, M&A, follow-on financings all went down considerably. And so Goldman really, for the first time since I was there in the mid eighties, had to undertake a massive uh, retrenching. And so we ended up having to let a substantial amount of people go over that period of time. It was very wrenching and challenging for the firm and for me personally. Uh, and uh, we just uh, obviously had to respond to the new realities of the marketplace. So during a, a two-year period, we then uh, downsized the staffing within the technology group. We actually then merged, and you had referenced earlier, the technology group with the telecom and media group. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, a gentleman named Gene Sykes, who is still a senior partner at Goldman Sachs and I ran that group. And we had to, to downsize it and rationalize it to the realities of the then uh, current marketplace. So it was a, a painful uh, experience for all, uh, for the firm it was. I know obviously for the employees, uh, all the firms on Wall Street went through their form of it. The one silver lining I will say is that a large number of those young people who had joined the firm in the uh, late 90s and early 10,000s, uh, when they left Goldman, ended up hooking up with companies like uh, Google and Amazon <laughs> and, and became very famous and wealthy and successful. So that was a bit of the silver lining from that uh, experience. So it was Goldman but Sachs University as well, right? The so. people were very talented and they were great people and they ended up landing on their feet. And as I said, many of them have had incredibly successful business careers. So before we move on to uh, Foodie Direct and, um, and the SPAC, I, I forgot to ask you, uh, what were the roadshows like in, in, in the early days? You know, considering most of these guys were t-shirt and jean, you know, kind, kinds of folks, and you're gonna, you know, go talk to, you know, the fidelities of the world. Uh, so share, share with our audience what, uh, what some of those roadshows uh, were like in the early days. Well, the first thing we had to do was buy Jerry Yang a suit and tie <laughs> and convince him to wear it. Uh, but, um, you know, we spent a, a, a good deal of time. Obviously, the founders and entrepreneurs that, that led these companies were very smart, capable people. So... Uh, you know, to be able to put together an investor deck that had the, the relevant information and content and positioning uh, for the company was something that these management teams adapted to very quickly and effectively. And so we, uh, Goldman Sachs, our team would work uh, together with the management teams to put together a presentation. Then we'd go on the road. And again, in today's, until the advent of COVID and Zoom, these roadshows were still manual. In fact, on my SPAC roadshow in September of 2019, we did a five-day roadshow on the East Coast and met with all these uh, investors for an hour each. And that 
was the same template that had taken place back in the 80s and 90s. We would go on a two week roadshow. We would visit, um, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 cities in the US, including Minnesota and Kansas City and San Diego. There'd always be <clears throat> one or two major investors in some of these outposts. Of course, the larger cities were LA, San Francisco, Boston, and New York. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, when their uh, international interest developed, we'd go overseas to London and Europe and have several days over there. But the roadshow would take a couple of weeks. All the meetings would be in person. The management teams would do eight or 10 hour long meetings every day. And at the end of the roadshow, we would uh, convene back in New York and, and price the offering. I do think uh, one of the positive developments uh, of COVID is um, you know the advent of the Zoom roadshow, and uh, it, it's pretty clear that a management team uh, spending an hour with an investor, whether it's in a Zoom or across a conference table in a physical room, are equally effective. And so I think that's added a great amount of productivity and efficiency to the process. And so um, that's something I think that's been a, a very positive development out of this tragedy. Fascinating. So let's talk about Foodie Direct. I mean, obviously, you, you had an incredible run at Goldman and um, uh, your experience in the investment banking uh, world was, uh, was amazing. How did you create the idea for Foodie Direct? Well, so I have always been a lover of great restaurants and very interested in the stories of restaurants and the chefs and so forth. In fact, some of my team used to rib me that when we'd go to uh, a city for a roadshow, I'd spend more time researching where to go to dinner than <laughs> preparation for the uh, actual roadshow discussion. But I've, so I've always been a great lover of restaurants. And um, I uh, had this uh, idea that the internet now, this is uh, when I founded Foodie Direct, it was in 2012. Uh, and that um, wouldn't it be great for food lovers like me to uh, have access to an online marketplace that would feature the highest quality dishes and specialties <clears throat> from the top restaurants, bakeries, and specialty food shops around the country and be able to discover these uh, great <clears throat> iconic uh, institutions and be able to order food and have that food be directly shipped to me and have the ability to enjoy in the comfort of my home or to send a gift to one of my clients or friends, the best chicken wings in Buffalo or crab cakes in Maryland or barbecue from Texas or Memphis. And I, there were a number of iconic restaurants around the country that did provide shipping from their own website. Joe Stone Crab uh, of Miami Beach being a, a famous one. And I had ordered uh, Stone Crab Claws from Joe's and I actually found the experience, the food itself was great, but the overall experience was wanting. The website was crummy, the shipping rates was high, there was no client service. Uh, it wasn't clear when you were gonna get your food. 
And then when I was interested in, in, in ordering uh, the best barbecue in the country, I had to do all my own research uh, online and find these places. And if you did a Google search for uh, the best Texas barbecue, you'd get a listing in it. You didn't know who shipped, who didn't ship, who did a good job, who didn't job. So I felt that there was a great opportunity for an online marketplace that featured these great places that enabled uh, a, a food lover to come to the site, to browse, to discover, to order it. We had a great website with great uh, features and functionalities. It had videos from the chefs or owners talking about the food. We had, because of our volume, we had low shipping rates, which in many cases, the restaurants, when they shipped, they didn't have the value, uh, volume. But when we had 150 different merchants on our site, we had the very high shipping volume. And so we had very low shipping rates from UPS and FedEx. And so um, our uh, shipping rates are the total cost of ordering uh, stone uh, crabs from uh, Florida would be a lot lower because the shipping rates were a lot lower. So that was the vision. We launched it. We were very successful. As I said, we had 150 uh, of the most famous uh, top restaurants and, and, and bakeries and ice cream shops. And then in 2018, we sold Foodie Direct to Goldbelly, which was our larger competitor. They had also uh, um, been founded about the same time. They were a Y Combinator sponsored company. Mm -hmm. So they had that great backing and DNA and they were larger than we were. Uh, and so we thought it was a very good outcome for our investors and our employees to uh, merge with Goldbelly. And so in December 18, Goldbelly purchased Foodie Direct. My brother, Ken Koenig, who had been a co-founder of Foodie Direct and had been in the restaurant business for 25 years prior to co-founding Foodie Direct with me, is now a senior uh, employee at, um, at Goldbelly. And so a number of our employees are over there. And I might mention that um, in terms of COVID tailwinds, again, silver lining out of a horribly tragic health and economic crisis. Mm -hmm. But in the wake of restaurants closing down around the country, Goldbelly's uh, business and revenues went through the roof in 2020 and they grew at an astronomical rate. And so uh, that company has become extremely successful as um, food lovers around the country were now focused on ordering all this great food in when they couldn't go out to their favorite places locally. And so, um, you know, that business has just skyrocketed in terms of its uh, volume, its revenues, its new customers, and so forth. So it's- Yeah, we, we, we used it probably at least a dozen times in, in 2020. So- um, And I still, I tell you, one of the reasons I founded Foodie Directed to this day <clears throat> out in, um, I live in Atherton near Palo Alto and the Bay Area has the best of everything in almost every case, but not in lox and bagels. And so <laughs> right. being able to order lox and bagels and, and that just incredible smoked salmon from Sables on the Upper East Side or Russ and Daughters down in the village uh, is just an unparalleled uh, pleasure to this day. So, 
Well, you know, with all the experience of, of seeing uh, internet uh, entrepreneurs, you became one, you know, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's great. So let, let's, let's talk a little bit about SPACs. Um, uh, obviously, there's a huge amount of them. I don't know if you follow uh, Terry Kawaja and Luma. You know, they created a LumaScape of all of the different SPACs that are out there, uh, especially the ones chasing um, the, the digital media space. You know, ad tech is hot again. Um, so uh, I, I'd love your thoughts on, uh, you know, do you think it's a little bit frothy here? And maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience in creating your own you know, uh, merging, you know, with your, your new business. Uh, so I think certainly with your experience in this world, you know, your, your thoughts on SPACs is going to be uh, really well received. Sure. So very interestingly, when we launched our SPAC in 2019, there were um, several dozen SPACs on the landscape. Today, there are over 300 SPACs with over $60 billion in capital that are all seeking uh, to uh, enter a business combination within two years of their launching. So <clears throat> when we launched in September, 2019, our thesis, my partner uh, is a gentleman named Jeff Epstein who had been the CFO of DoubleClick, interestingly. And that's when I first met him back in the late nineties. He then became CFO of Oracle uh, he's been on the board of over a dozen tech companies, including Booking Holdings. He's the lead director of Twilio. And when he and I launched Apex in September 2019, actually, uh, very few people in Silicon Valley knew what a SPAC was. But our thesis was that there were hundreds of tech unicorns, private technology companies worth over a billion dollars. And yet the number of tech IPOs per year was a fraction of what it used to be back in the, in the 90s. So there were in 2017, 18 and 19, 25 to 30 tech IPOs. And, and there were hundreds of these unicorns and dozens more every year becoming unicorns. So clearly there was a, um, a problem and a backlog in companies ability to have a path to public ownership. And in addition to the fact that there was kind of an investment banking oligopoly where only two or three firms were lead managing all the technology IPOs, unless you were a super high profile, $5 billion enterprise value, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues like Uber or Pinterest or Zoom, you weren't able to access uh, the public markets in the timeframe or on the terms that were ideal to you and your investors. And so the SPAC platform, which had been around for a long time, but had been kind of a lower end platform where not very, very many SPAC sponsors or companies were prominent or, or, or very successful or mainstream, uh, then a number of entrepreneurs ended up becoming SPAC sponsors and then using the SPAC as a platform to target much higher profile much higher quality mainstream companies. And so just in that 16 months from September, 2019 till now, as I said, we've gone from 40 or 50 SPACs to over 300. There are a number of SPACs that are focused on technology. When we first launched, 
there were, on one hand, you could count the number of tech-focused SPACs that had the investment thesis that I had talked about. Now there's many more. We feel, uh, Jeff Epstein and I feel that we offer a very differentiated positioning based on our experience, relationships, and domain expertise. But when we first launched Apex, we met with uh, close to 100 of the top venture capitalists and private equity investors in technology companies. And many of our discussions were really missionary work and education about what a SPAC was and why a SPAC might be relevant uh, for uh, these companies and investors to consider as a path to liquidity. And so the first year we spent, uh, as I said, a significant amount of our time doing that. Now, I, I would say most uh, investors, VCs, private equity firms, as well as many companies are way up the curve and educated in terms of SPACs and understand the, the trade-offs of the benefits and the disadvantages and costs of SPACs versus other paths to liquidity. And so um, I think that the SPAC is here to stay. As I said, it, it now has attracted very credible and prominent sponsors and companies. And so now when a company is considering its path to liquidity, it will consider a standard IPO, a direct listing, uh, and also a SPAC, in addition to obviously potentially raising private capital or uh, in uh, selling the company potentially to a strategic or financial investor. So it's a part of the toolkit now, which I think is a very viable option for certain types of companies with certain objectives and characteristics. So do you, do you think there could be a, a time where there's too many of them chasing deals? Yes. Uh, and, and so as mentioned, the SPACs have a definitive two-year life. They have 24 months. If a deal is not consummated within that time, then uh, the uh, uh, $10 per share that investors pay in the IPO, which is held in trust until a deal is approved and closed, then gets returned to the shareholders and the SPAC dissolves or disappears. So out of those 300 SPACs, I think some significant number will not be successful in consummating a deal. And one of the reasons why there's been such a significant and rapid uh, saturation and appearance of SPACs is because the downside for investors is if a deal doesn't get announced or isn't successful, they get their money back. And so there really is not any downside other than parking dead capital for some period of time, but with interest rates where they are, that may not be such a costly endeavor. And so I do think we'll see a significant rationalization. I think that there's going to emerge a cadre of SPACs that have very credible, very successful uh, um, uh, sponsor teams that have a proven track record as hopefully we've demonstrated with our first bet. Yeah, it was a great article in the Wall Street Journal uh, just today about that when you make an announcement about uh, a, you know, a, a business formation that the stocks normally uh, have a, a nice move uh, and that investors, early investors are doing very well by uh, investing in SPACs. Yeah. So as, as we finish our time together here, what, what do you think the investment world will look like in the near and distant future for media, digital media, or you know, media, you know, telecom, et cetera? 
Well, I would say a, a couple of macro points. One is I, I haven't seen the market this frothy since those days of the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, you know, companies announcing IPOs. And, and the difference, those companies were, were, were very young. They did not have proven business models. Uh, and uh, they were being valued based on metrics, whether it was number of eyeballs or page views and so forth, which we've learned uh, over time were not sustainable uh, economic uh, um, metrics. Uh, certainly not predictive in terms of long-term value. These companies are very high quality companies that are generating revenues, that have proven business models, very strong management teams, traction and so forth. So there's a complete difference uh, in, in, in the profile of those companies. Today, uh, for example, the companies that I just mentioned who've gone public in the last two days, we're now trading at 100% premiums, but the valuations are very frothy and we are seeing, and the SPAC has become the vehicle for a number of these futuristic companies, whether it's space travel or electric vehicles or self-driving vehicles and so forth. There've been a number of those companies, including um, 3D printing as well, uh, that have gone public through SPACs, which have not gone public through the normal IPO channel and SPACs may be a platform where those more futuristically oriented companies where their value is generated by the perceived profits that'll be generated many years down the road versus their current uh, financial performance. Um, so I think that the, um, you know, the market is going to uh, continue to evolve. As I said, I do think we're at a pretty frothy stage in the market. So likely to have some kind of correction going forward. But clearly the companies that continue to innovate and provide uh, commercial and uh, generate commercial success in different areas are gonna continue to attract significant investment and very attractive valuations. And um, companies that are, are pioneering in, in new sectors uh, are gonna be uh, rewarded very high valuations. Growth is clearly at a premium uh, in the marketplace. And so uh, companies that can demonstrate very significant growth in the uh, excess of 20 or 30% are being uh, accorded very significant uh, valuations by the market. And I think that will uh, really continue over time. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, it's been great to, uh, to hang out with a fellow Long Islander. Uh, you, you, you definitely qualify as a net OG in, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, the, you and your team are, you know, uh, mostly responsible, uh, for, you know, financing the, the whole sector. And even though you had competition, um, and you might've lost out on a couple, um, I think I can speak comfortably on behalf of the whole industry that we really appreciate, you know, what you've, uh, what you've given to the business and uh, you should be really proud of your accomplishments. It has been a great, uh, great uh, hour to spend with you and look forward to staying in touch in the near future. Well, thank you, Andy. You know what? It's been a, the privilege of a lifetime to be part of this community during this period of time <clears throat> from the early eighties through now and to witness the emergence of these markets and most importantly, these companies and to be fortunate enough 
to have the opportunity to work with some of these incredibly dynamic and successful and visionary uh, entrepreneurs in building new markets and new companies has been the privilege of a lifetime. And so uh, it's something that I never take for granted and I'm thankful for every day. And you know, hopefully we have a bit more of a run in our future. <laughs> That's great. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. All right. Great to be with you. This podcast was brought to you by Duration Media. For more information on the company and its revenue generation ad tech, please visit their website at durationmedia.net. Like and follow this podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Net OGs on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your audio so you'll never miss a single episode. Stay tuned for more interviews with Net OGs from companies such as DoubleClick, New York Times, Moda Media, 24-7 Media, Yahoo, NFL, SuperBowl.com, and many, many more. To see the full list and learn more about the Net OGs, visit our website at thenetogs.com. <laughs>